This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Hamilton, the one-handed bandit. (laughs) For reasons outside of other people's thought processes, yes, I am the one-handed bandit right now. I just had a surgery on my hand. So, all good. Yeah, so... Um, glad, glad to have you back and, uh, glad it didn't, uh, keep you down. So it's been a weird couple of weeks, um, for our listeners. Uh, I've been away and you've been away. So it's been, uh, we've been kind of recording. We, we wanted to, we've heard from you guys. You want it weekly. So we're doing everything we can to keep it on track, but we couldn't get Steve and I together at the same time. He was away. I was away. And, um, so, uh, you and Greg did the heavy lifting on the last couple. We just had, uh, Mold come out and man, what a what a success! Nothing like a a bear attack to get the ratings up, right? Holy white! What an episode! I think I I did the the intros for the first three four minutes, and then when I said to to Jeremy, "Well, let's hear your story," it was forty five minutes. Greg and I just sat there dumbfounded, just listening and taking in every word he said. It was just incredible. If you haven't listened to it, find it. I believe it's ninety four. So good, so good. Yeah, um, yeah, and just uh, our, our not that we're ratings fiends, you know. We we're always we're doing it for what I think is the right reason, but uh, we seen the charts and it and it went through the roof. So uh, uh, I I was joking to you and Greg that I can sit back and retire now that you guys have got things firmly in hand, the best ratings so far for for the show. But anyway, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you haven't listened to that, Mauled is a great episode. Um, and we've had tons of feedback, uh, more so than any other sh- uh, show we've done, so podcast. So, yeah, tune into it. Really cool and uh, great work. And then we followed up with Joe Karpinski, which uh, uh, BC native, uh, and he talks sheep hunting. And, you know, you guys wanted hunting stories. We gave you one. And, um, you know, so we'd love to hear your feedback. You, if you like it, we'll do more. If not, then we'll we'll do a little bit less. But uh, it, we want to mix it up a bit with uh, some local sheep hunting stories. Oh, speaking of sheep hunting, what do we got uh, on the the raffle side? Yeah, so very cool. Um, We've released our wild sheep raffles. It's just over a week now. It's almost two weeks. And um, we've got a great lineup this year. Uh, This is our biggest lineup ever. People keep telling us, hey, give us more. Uh, We want to support you guys. So as always, we've got our our desert uh, sheep, our bighorn out of uh, Sierra El Alamo out of Mexico. They're killing some massive rams down there. So anyone that needs to finish off their finaz, their slam, whatever you want to call it, uh, that's a great opportunity. And uh, with a very reputable outfitter in Sierra El Alamo, they do a great job down there, great hunting opportunity. This year, new for 2020, 2022, 2023 is a polar bear hunt. So a bucket list item. How many people get to go and enjoy this? Um, Northwest Territories, and this is uh, a hunt of a lifetime. So uh, we've heard, switch it up this year. We've switched it up. We've heard, you know, let's look at some international hunts, but with, you know, the way the world is right now, we just wanted to keep it local. So you don't have to worry about travel restrictions or anything. It's a Canadian hunt in the territories, polar bear hunt with a reputable outfitter and um, just world-class hunt. So check that out. And then uh, our staples, we've got our caribou or grizzly bear. You get to choose between which one you want with the Midnight Sun Outfitters. Uh, Great outfit. Um, Jordan Kempf was our winner last year. 
and he killed a massive boo. Um, he's just stoked about it. There's going to be an article in our magazine, not in this fall edition, but this winter. Um, he's writing an article for us, and he killed a massive boo and just had a great hunt. So um, great opportunity there. And, of course, um, Silver Sage Outfitters coming to us with that antelope hunt in Alberta. And lastly, our Bonnie's Ultimate Sheep Camp, which this year we've taken it up a notch. We've got a fierce rifle in there. This package is worth another five grand over and above what it's ever been. So great package we put together there. Uh, Ken Thibodeau supporting us with the um, uh, sheep mount and Barney's, of course, Sitka gear and uh, that fierce rifle. So just a great lineup. Um, so yeah, lots of raffles. And of course, Steve, um, we're, we can't forget our one campfire raffle, which is um, we're half sold out now. That mm-hmm. thing's going to be gone. It's not going to see the the draw date. It's going to sell it ahead of time. And what's that package worth? Ten grand or something? Uh, about ten grand. Yeah, but it, we've got uh, what have we got in there? We got a, a wall tent, uh, uh, stove, a generator, chainsaw, some vortex stuff, some Yeti stuff, some sleeping bags. It's it's everything you need for. A, a, a base camp, like like not a, a sheep camp, but a base camp. If you're going out hunting moose, or if you're just recreating in the back country and you want to bring uh, some families and friends, this has everything you need. So yeah, grab those tickets as well. Yeah, very cool and uh, great package you put together there, Steve. I, I think there's a generator in that too. So just yeah, great great setup. And uh, so uh, go to our website, click on Wild Sheep Raffles. Um, it's through Durrell. You do it all all online electronically. Um, it's selling well. Uh, I think the first week we sold 15% of the tickets. So um, again, we, we anticipate the sellout. Great support from you guys. And again, if it doesn't take, uh, if you, if, if uh, you don't want to win some great stuff, this, this really moves the needle for our conservation efforts in British Columbia. So, you know, we keep putting more money on the ground for wild sheep and wildlife in British Columbia. And it's because you support us through these raffles. So, you know, great opportunity to win. And unlike, um, you know, buying a lotto ticket, yeah, sure, it's great to have that chance. But where does that money go? You probably don't want to know, but you know this money for WSR is going to a good cause. So thank you for your support. Let's keep it rolling. Um, And yeah, Uh, just before we jump into the podcast, Let's talk about sheep harvest. So we've been talking to the government. Uh, I spoke to Bill Jacks a couple of weeks ago, and anecdotally, they, had, they don't have final numbers yet, but uh, hats off to you, hunters in British Columbia. Our harvest uh, success rate and uh, – actually, not success rate. Our harvest rate on underage rams has dropped significantly. There's still a few a few kinks to work out, but last year was really bad for BC and uh, happy to report that this year is is much, much better. So hats mm-hmm. off to to everyone. And, and uh, you know, I think that's a, a testament to the education piece that we put out there. Um, I, I, I can't wait till we get back in um, session for Kamloops and we can do this face-to-face and people can do some uh, horn aging and some judging and, and just get their hands on some horns and have a better understanding of, of harvest strategies for, for sheep in BC. Oh yeah, you can you can look at all the pictures you want, but until you you actually put your hands on the horns, it's like holy crap! And you have somebody that is an expert in aging go, "That's a false. This is a real. This is a lamb tip. This is what broomed is." You can hear it all, but when you 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 can always learn, and as evidenced by uh, what we're hearing, it it seems like it's working for people. So yeah, good work. Yeah, right on. Okay, so episode ninety six. 
Old Cal. You, you've been working on this one for a long time, Steve. Oh, yeah. Um, when we get these influencers, it's tough, right? These guys, everyone wants a piece of Ryan Callahan. They want a piece of – so, you know, I testament to you to get them on the show. Unfortunately, you were away that week. And, uh, yep. and of course, you know, Ryan's time's limited, so we took it when we could. And I'm sorry that you missed it. But this is a great chat with – with Cal, um, you know it's you know it's it's what you expect from Ryan. He's down to earth. So anyway, that anyone that doesn't know Ryan Callahan, I'm sure everyone does, but he is the director of conservation and mediator, um, and he's had a huge influence on you know on the hunting space when it mm-hmm. comes to influencers and social media, and, and been in front of the camera for a long time. So um, I, I learned some really cool stuff from Ryan. We had a pretty honest conversation, and uh, just really enjoyed sitting down with him and getting to know a bit more about him. And um, really enjoyed this this BS session with uh, Ryan Callahan from Meteor. Yeah, when I was putting this together, it took a few months. We were back and forth through text and emails. It it wasn't he he was exactly what you see on TV and on YouTube. He was that person, and uh, sucks that I missed it. But I'm glad it was able to come together for you guys, and uh, hope everybody likes the episode. Yeah, and he said he'd come back, so we'll 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 sort it out when you got some free time, and we'll we'll do it again uh, at a later date. So, um, and we talk about bear attacks with Ryan Callahan on this one. So more, more bear, now, bear stories, right? <laughs> now, yeah, yeah, awesome, cool. All right, well, with that, um, ladies and gentlemen, we're off to episode ninety six with Old Cal. Enjoy across Canada and throughout the world. If you come across a campfire in the woods on a mountaintop or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Kel, uh, Awesome, man! I can't thank you for coming on the show and being uh, being part of our podcast here. Really excited to have you. Oh, on. excited to be here! It's a long time coming. We've been working on this for quite a while. Well, and uh, it's not like you're not in demand, right? So I know you get a hundred requests a day. So uh, honestly, really humbled that you come on the show, and really excited just to talk about what's going on in the meteor world, what's going on in Kel's world, and just what's happening uh, in the hunting side of things. So really stoked about uh, the show Great. today. Great, yeah, thank you. I'm I'm. Uh, interested in learning learning on what's happening on the sheep end of things too so right on so anyway i know most people don't need any intros on ryan callahan but uh you know let's just uh let's let's just do that i guess uh i guess you're coming live from uh bozeman today are you yes sir bozeman montana uh headquarters of meat eater where i'm the director of conservation right on so you know i've been following you for a decade now, probably back, to, you know, certainly back to first light days. So maybe just talk a little bit about your journey, about how, you know, where you started and, and where you got, how you got to where you are today. Sure. I, you know, really always just very enamored with anything outdoors and really never was able to shake that kind of compassion for being outside. So I did everything I could to stay outside and, um, you know, wrecked my college career, but, uh, always, uh, found myself guiding, fishing or hunting and some whitewater here and there and, uh, or working outside in some fashion. And 
uh, through that guiding career, I ended up working for uh, a number of production companies actually, because, uh, you know, I end up guiding TV shows or something here and there. And, and it was through a combination of those things that I, um, started working at first light. And, uh, that was boy, probably 2007. I started doing some work for, uh, Kenton and Scott in the absolute infancy of, of the business. And then came on full time ish, 2011. And I, um, then, you know, uh, through, uh, first light kind of ran into Steve Ranella in a funny way. Uh, buddy of mine was working on bison conservation and the idea of restoring a bison herd here in Montana through national wild, uh, national wildlife federation. And he's like, yeah, we're working with this author he's got this great uh american buffalo book and uh he i guess he's got some sort of a tv show but i, I think you guys could <laughs> get along and that was kind of right when they had first started filming meat eater and they had wrapped up their seasons of the wild within which was like the first show that steve did and um yeah, we kind of uh, was. <laughs> he asked what I thought about guiding some first timers or helping out with some first first timers, rather, on the Missouri River, and that was Joe Rogan and Brian Callan, and I I tried to get out of it every which way I could because from a guide perspective, somebody who made his living doing that, I thought there couldn't be anything more miserable than taking two dudes from L.A., Hollywood dudes from L.A. <laughs> Uh, hunting for the first time, but uh, some friends encouraged me to uh, suck it up and do it, and I did. And uh, Joe and Brian were awesome folks, and um, turned out to be a great experience. And and after that show, uh, Steve and the then producer of Meat Eater was like, "Well, what else do you have going on?" And um, kind of the the rest is history there. Right on. So you talk about this young passion for anything outdoors. Was that ingrained through your family ties? And did you hunt as a kid or and was your family into hunting or how did that? Well, it's kind of interesting. So my mom's side of the family, huge family here in Montana and be like some casual hunting, but uh, agri- a lot of agriculture in the family. So like lots of time outside, lots of time with animals and you know, I think kind of a, a, a typical amount of hunting for folks that uh, see themselves on, on like the agriculture side of things. And then uh, my dad's side of the family, also here in Montana, they um, would had largely, there is some big game hunting in the past, but largely the only hunting that they did by the time I came along was for uh, Canada geese and that was it and they they considered themselves goose hunters and that was a, a fun scene to be around um, but it was you know very social and uh, you know it was definitely like they're like fun competitive folks uh, a lot of athletics on that side of the family and um, they liked getting geese but that certainly wasn't like the entire point of 
everybody meeting up on the weekends. So, right. yeah. So where did that lead you? So did you, did you, was your first stuff bird hunting or, you know, where did, where did you get into the, where'd you get the hunting bug then? I guess really. <sighs> Boy, I just always had it. My mom would get me like outdoor life as a birthday present every year. And I just devoured that stuff. And, and I was lucky enough to grow up right on the edge of the rattlesnake wilderness here um, in Montana outside of Missoula and spent just a ton of time on Rattlesnake Creek and in the wilderness area. And um, I could actually connect the grade school that I went to via the river system. And uh, I'd come home from school, uh, walk home a couple of miles through the river every day. And uh, which was real surprising if I ever brought any friends home. Because uh, uh, <laughs> it was it was a challenge if if you didn't like uh, getting muddy and wet every day. Um, a lot of sting nettles in my youth too. So and uh, and then yeah, oddly enough, I you know I'd pester my dad into being outside all the time. Like I said, they're very much an organized athletics family, um, big football family specifically. And, and, um, you know, it was like the last thing I wanted to do was be in organized sports during the fall. But, uh, he had, um, uh, a secretary whose husband was a outfitter. And that was like, once I figured that out, that was just my full-time mentor, and I would pester the heck out of that guy with endless questions. And he had endless patience for it and follow him around as much as I could. And kind of learned that guiding outfitting business from him and um, spent a ton of time with him. And that was the first outfitter that I worked for here in Montana. How old would you have been when you went on that first sort of, you know, whatever, helping them out on, on those first hunts? Ooh, probably 13 or 14, awesome. I think. Yeah. That's so cool. And yeah, it was just with them as much as possible. And the guy was, you know, he would, you know, work subtly to encourage my dad to let me skip school and stuff. Like he had, uh, this guy, you know, he had a master's in wildlife management from uh, the University of Colorado, but he was way more invested in encouraging me to stay outside as much as possible and, uh, and learn, learn the, uh, the guiding side of things. So, um, I, he provided a lot of, a lot of excuses to miss some, some days in, in my high school career for sure. Yeah, that's perfect. So, uh, um, so was it big game stuff you were guiding for or what kind of stuff were you at that stage? What were yep, you doing? So at that stage, it was all big game and it was, you know, primarily antelope. You know, I helped out on, on a bunch of elk stuff. Um, but then when I first like was legally guiding, it was antelope and some deer. And then um, by that point, I started picking up you know, trying to fill in the rest of my season with guiding. So it'd be, right. um, whitewater when the rivers were high and crappy. And as soon as they cleared up, it'd be fishing and then would cut fishing season short to get back into hunting and then would run that as much as, you know, as long as I could. 
and then would, you know, help out outfitters um, and some of the production folks that I ended up working for at like during trade show season and okay. kind of fill the calendar in that way. Did, did I, I think on one of the shows, Steve talks about your guiding career and I think he mentioned BC. Did you do some guiding up here in British? Yeah. Korea? Yeah. So actually the, it, it's not going to be good for the recording, but there's a moose hanging behind my head here on, on the screen. And that's, that's a BC moose. Only moose that, uh, I ever put it, put a tag on. Can't say it's the only moose I've shot, but, cool. um, yeah. So during those years when the, um, oil sands were really pumping, yeah, that provided some Yankees, some opportunity to come up and guide because, uh, the outfitter, uh, British Columbia outfitter and guides association was, uh, very adamant about the lack of uh, qualified people to, to guide during those years. Cause everybody was up making big time money in the oil sands. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I got, so what kind of stuff did you do in BC here then? What, uh, what were you guiding for up here? Uh, black bear, some spring black bear. And then in the fall, uh, grizzly moose and, uh, some goat. Wow. So you got, yeah, you got the real BC experience. And if you're doing mountain hunting and all that sort of stuff too, eh? So. Oh yeah. And, um, you know, uh, folks who like really have the, uh, a lot, the idea, like the, the brown bear hunting, um, the mountain grizzly was just incredible. Like it so much fun, so challenging. We'd really get remote, um, and just great, beautiful country, you know? And like a, a mountain grizzly in the in the fall, with winter coming on, does not sit still, you know. So it was great. It was really fun. Yeah. I, that's still one of my favorite things. Yeah, I, I was on a sheep hunt this fall, and we we seen four grizz, um, sow, and three cubs. And yeah, it's just one of my favorite things when I'm out there, just seeing those grizzly on the landscape. They're so majestic, incredible, eh? And I, I'm so it, it really makes me sad that we don't get to hunt them anymore. But uh, yeah, so really cool to have guided that and had that experience. Eh? Oh yeah, just incredible, incredibly fortunate, and you know, just watching bears that you know feel really confident in where they are on the food chain. It, you know, it's <laughs> it's an animal that behaves like no other animals, right? They like a, a big boar grizzly or a big sow. Um, they they don't fear a whole lot. You know, so they fill in some of that time of, uh, you know, nervously checking the wind every 30 seconds with some actual leisure time, which is incredible to see, you know, some play and some leisure. And then when you watch them really get down to business and dig for squirrels and, um, and, and cover ground doing that and the amount of earth and the size of the rocks and stuff that they move is, you know, it's, it'd be hard to have the level of appreciation for that animal um, that you, that you gain from watching them do those things that any, any, mm. any way else, you know, I mean, it's like watching them really, again, have that, that confidence of where they are in the food chain, the, their ability to like bask out in the sun and, and relax, like legs spread, uh, you know, all their soft parts to the sun, like no, no other animals really get to do that, you know? And, and then when they're 
throwing VW sized boulders down the mountain looking for a squirrel nest, it, you it's awe inspiring. They're an awesome animal. Yeah, that's a great description. So, you know, as a mountain guide, you're, you see a lot of grizzly bears and as a grizzly mountain guide, you see even more. And I'm probably, I'm pretty sure there's probably some harrowing experiences for most grizzly guides. Now there's that famous, uh, smell me now lady scene, uh, that is phenomenal. You guys caught that on camera, but, uh, for our listeners, uh, you guys had that encounter with a grizzly. Is there any worse than that? Or is that the worst one? And if it is talk, talk me through it. And if there's a worse one, I want to hear that one. <laughs> well, there's nothing worse, right? Like when you're in the guide position, everybody is your responsibility. And there, there were a lot of people on the mountain and they're, very much on your mind and that's that makes it worse but the first time i got charged by a grizz was a a smaller sow um considerably smaller i i judged her as like a first time mom and i was i had two yellow labs at the time and i you know i poured everything i had into training those dogs and it it very well could have saved my bacon on on this deal but we were out on an early spring kind of shed hunt, looking for mushrooms, really just taking advantage of a day off that hadn't come around in a long time. And yeah, cut through this strip of timber and saw some flashes of, you know, kind of gold going through the timber. And I remember thinking like the part of my brain that wanted to calm myself down was like, oh, it's a bull elk. And then the other part of my brain at the exact same time was like, you know, that's not an elk. <laughs> and then the cubs started screaming, but they were running the opposite direction. And this is through kind of post holy snow and, you know, very limited mobility. And then all of a sudden mom popped up and was in a, a full blown charge. And she stopped at probably 30 yards Sorry about that. Probably 30 yards the first time. And then she kind of backed off and turned towards the Cubs, made it about three steps, then spun around and charged to about eight or so yards. Sorry. And then um, the, you know, I have the dogs at, at heel telling them to stay. And then I'd turn towards mom and say, whoa, because I, I didn't feel like, certainly didn't feel like it was going to improve the matter by playing dead with two dogs yeah. sitting there. And yeah. I needed to make sure that they uh, didn't exacerbate the situation. So mm. I was turning to the dogs and saying, whoa, or, you know, telling them to stay, turning to mom and saying, whoa. And it, she just could not make her mind up. She had her ears up. She was like on high alert. She wasn't laying her ears back and she turned what would be the second to last time, kind of did a pump fake back towards the Cubs and then spun and came towards me. And, you know, I was a fly fishing guide at the time. And, and I just remember that I could have, could have poked her in the eye with my fly rod. So she hit, hit the brakes within nine feet and stared at me stared at each of the dogs and then turned and left for the last time. And it was, yeah, I mean, I, I knew the entire time that this was really going to happen and I was going to get scratched up, 
but I had the wow. little bit of confidence to keep the dogs in check and kind of keep my wits about me primarily because she kept her, kept her ears up the whole time. And, you know, like animal behavior, typically, whether it's a horse or a mule or a dog, um, they really lay their ears back when that's kind of go time. And so I've, I've felt like we had a little leeway to try to help her make the right decision. <laughs> and what did the dogs do? They just sit there. Cause they, they had to be losing it a little they, bit. They just sat there. Wow. Um, and you know, and, and I trained them so heavily on sit, stay, come. Um, and they were like, they were just not waterfowl dogs that ever broke. And they, they really, wow. really proved it right there. So, but I had so much adrenaline in me. I turned to walk back the direction that I had come. Unfortunately, like she was on the exact same path as my truck was. And I, I walked before I even knew it. I walked into a completely different drainage and, you know, the whole area is known for grizzly bears. And it was adrenaline carried me far, far and fast there. So did you have a firearm with you? you know, I did have a firearm. Time? I had bear spray and a firearm and, Okay. Um, you know, everybody likes to ask, you know, oh, did you poop your pants? You know? And after being in those situations a few times now, it, you kind of, for me anyway, you have the ability to make a decision and you better carry it out. I think indecision yeah. is what yeah. gets you, you know? And those animals are certainly aware like we we know like our domestic animals are very aware of nervous people and how they react to that and i think if um the the more confident you are the more that bear second guesses whether it's worth it or not yeah that makes a lot of sense well that's one thing i noticed on that you know Again, that's phenomenal that you guys were able to capture that clip of that grizzly charging you and Steve. But that was the one thing; like you were so confident in that inter uh, interaction as well. You could Steve was too, but you were uber confident. You did not waver. Steve was kind of, you know, he was keeping an eye on things. I think he was a little more uncomfortable than you were, but you just sat there so confident, and that bear just, just you know, and then just disappeared. Right? I um. I guess two things in that scenario that the, my confidence came from, from truly knowing that that bear was coming out where she came out because I had gone up the mountain to keep tabs on her. She was like uh, a sow with three cubs. She was very, you know, noticeably a mature bear, noticeably very confident in where she was. She displayed a lot of like very aggressive behavior um, earlier in the day, not towards us. She still at that point had no knowledge that we were there, but I didn't feel comfortable just pretending like we were going to both go about our business down there in the same Valley. So I had gone up to keep tabs on her and she had just about left that Valley when a, a black bear had come out on the same slope that she was on. It was that late evening and the sun had been baking that slope. So the thermals took the smell of that black bear up to her and she dropped a few hundred feet in just the blink of an eye trying, trying to get that black bear. 
and all of a sudden she was right back down on the valley floor again. And I um, had a uh, one of the cinematographers, this guy named Dom, uh, great great guy. Um, but it was his first time in in the backcountry, really. And he was just the most happy photographer, cinematographer on the planet, having like this charismatic, beautiful, big grizzly bear right in front of him. And I'm, I'm you know, I said, Hey, you know, we gotta, we gotta slide out of here. This is not a safe situation anymore. And, um, and we did, and we started making it down the slope. I told everyone that, you know, we needed to, to, pack up we were in kind of some thicker brush at that point um but had like a couple of very great uh, positions to view the the mountainsides and steve was actually looking at a, a nice boar grizzly at the time and mm-hmm. you know a bear that we could have been pursuing when i heard that sow coming down the mountain behind us and i was able to see you know as, as you go through the woods you keep tabs of where you are, right? And so there's not that many great clean paths through that subalpine fur that tangles you up every step. And so I was had kind of like mentally noted where like big boulder over here, this tree over here, this is a great path to be on. And I could hear her on that same path just like my dog does now, just fully sucking up my scent on the ground. And she was coming down and I was able to see her past that boulder, past that tree. So my confidence came from not having to guess where that bear was going to come out. She was on my trail. She was following me. I was 100% confident of that. And so at that point I was like, okay, this is going to happen. And it's going to happen fast. Yeah. Whereas there wasn't enough time to to relay all that information to, to Steve. I was just saying, you know, this is going to happen. And so he had to keep his head a little bit more on a swivel than I did, where I was like, this is where this bear is going to come out. And that was actually, um, you know, so I kind of had come up with a game plan of like, when she gets to this point, it's the, the point of no return. When she gets to here, I'm going to shoot right. my warning shot. The next round in the chamber is, is going to be a dead, dead bear. And, um, you know, very fortunately, you don't want to kill a sow with three cubs. Um, so very fortunately, it was not a dead bear. And um, she, I, I think the warning shot and then the shock of seeing an, an entire crew of people versus one lone person was enough again to make that bear think just half a second longer instead of reacting to that foreign smell. But that was just an incredibly aggressive bear and just an aggressive, we saw a lot of aggressive behavior that time with the last of the food. I think, you know, all the sugar spiking in the fruit up there, they know winter's coming on. It's get, get the food while you can that true like hyperphagia type of mode. And then, uh, but I guess the other, the other, uh, big piece of credit that I have to give Steve and, and like a failure from a guide's perspective is 
I didn't give any warning as to this is going to be a, a warning shot, not a kill shot. Um, right. So I, I think that a lot of people in that position probably would have backed me up with a, a kill shot to the bear, not a warning shot. And yeah, uh, he's still coming. She's still coming. We need to do something type thing. Right. Right. Exactly. So, and, and Steve had told me later, he's like, yeah, your first shot. I thought, well, that's a little premature. Okay. Right. So, um, but it, it, uh, that, that was my game plan and it worked, worked that time. So. Well, it worked perfectly. And you know, there's two things, takeaways. And I think for a lot of people that haven't been in the, the mountain with grizzly bears, that grizzly bears are like, half a mile for a grizzly bear they can be there in seconds like that certainly a minute you know it's they're, they're so fast and they, they cover the landscape so quick and a hundred yards for a grizzly bear is literally a few seconds and uh and that's that shows a lot of maturity on both your parts and i, I was really impressed but i've i've been in i've actually never had a full-on charge i've had some very close calls we're talking 50 60 70 yards but not like bluff charges but at a long distance never anything like that and that's that's and both of you guys stood up and I was just, I was so impressed because it's it's tough tough to do that and then also have that plan because most people don't have a plan and you very rarely I guess you you had that confidence and that privilege I guess of having been up that trail and having those marks and and having the wherewithal to actually apply that because a lot of people wouldn't apply that either I guess that's probably the guiding experience kicking in as well right yeah yeah I mean it in it, it you know it, it comes down to some simple things right like a bunch of People don't move efficiently together. Um, my uh, kind of mantra that I picked up from that first outfitter was, you know, things work out way better if you're set up and the animals come to you uh, versus trying to be on the move and trying to make something happen. And, I, you know, that wasn't the exact scenario there, but I think that definitely – played a part in, in, you know, quick reaction thinking and, and hopefully, um, right. I, I, you know, I definitely like very much analyze that stuff over and over again. And in the ideal scenario, I think like the real pro way of doing it would, would have been to make sure that situation never happens in, in the first place. Right. Um, but you know, you gotta, especially when you're hunting grizzly bears, you're you got to be amongst them so yes yeah yeah well, I, I thought you did a great job and it was pretty cool i'll tell you it's great footage that's for sure okay cal so um let's talk a little bit if you don't mind about um about your first light day so were was it um were you the director of conservation for first light is that correct do i have that title correct ultimately the director of conservation my my first business card was marketing media and sales uh, pretty uh, pretty diverse portfolio there so um, you know I, I you know lots of times on meat eater um, you talk about conservation and and obviously you have a deep conservation ethic uh, you've grown up with it and I you even talked about your mentor in your early days of having his master's in wildlife management and that sort of thing so um, Maybe let's just touch a little bit on the conservation aspect of it and, and um, you know, why that was so important to you back in the first light days and, 
and I guess you know maybe even touch a little bit on on any of the stuff that you're doing now through your position with uh, with meat eater and stuff like that. Sure, I had like the biggest thing. So I worked in the Bob Marshall in between Glacier National Park and the Bob Marshall. I worked uh, in the Frank Church Wilderness. I spent a lot of time in wilderness areas. Like I said, I grew up in the rattlesnake wilderness. And I remember coming out of uh, a hunting season, the end of my hunting season, and getting back to Missoula and uh, being invited through a friend to go to a uh, backcountry hunters and anglers meeting. And there were like, you know, 15 people there and there was free beer. So I was there for the free beer and they started uh, (laughs) talking about the idea of um, this like land transfer idea, right? So our federally managed lands, we have 640 million acres of federally managed lands here in in the uh, U.S. side of things. And this like movement that apparently had always existed to sell that land off, give it to the states, let them sell it off um, to private interests. And then I got out of that meeting thinking, well, that just can't be right. And started doing a lot of reading and talking to a lot of friends that had gone on to careers in conservation and started reading about, yeah, this idea that, you know, wilderness areas aren't uh, a good thing for, uh, because people can't go there was the way that it was put or, um, any sort of restrictions on federally managed lands weren't good or just the fact that, um, the, the government could, uh, own and manage lands wasn't good. And this was just baffling to me because I was making a, you know, a very meager, but very fulfilling career on these publicly managed lands. And, every client I had left with this like giant smile on their face and this almost to a person sense of ownership of these spaces that they hadn't had before. And, and, you know, I was like firsthand witness to a lot of like these life changing scenes for people who had never experienced a lot of these big outdoor remote places. Um, and I just couldn't figure out how anybody could be against that. So when I went over to the first light side of things, like I said, that first business card that I had was everything, you know, there were three of us in the whole company and I started kind of posting on behalf of First Light in regards to 
our company stance on public lands and certainly the access of hunters and anglers to public lands. And, you know, once the three of us would get together at first light, we were all very much on the same page. Like the creation story of the business was all on public lands, like chasing elk on public lands. And the idea was very simple. Like you just don't need technical hunting apparel if you want to put up a big high fence and sit in a box. Like, is it nice to have? Are you going to look good? Sure. But do you need it? Not really if there's a heater or an air conditioner sitting there, right? So that was kind of like the big green light and impetus behind, you know, First Light really kind of making a splash, as odd as it sounds, by having an opinion on a potentially very divisive topic. Very cool. So, you know, the years that you were there that you spent working for them before you came across to, to Meat Eater, you know, did that evolve? Did that change as the company grew? And, and you know, obviously now things have changed with uh, the acquisition through Meat Eater and stuff. But, uh, you know, how, how did it evolve with your time there? And as you grew as a company, obviously, when you got three, the three principals in the room making decisions, it's pretty easy to, to do your messaging. As you grew, did, did things change in that capacity or, or is it pretty consistent? You know, growth definitely brings on challenges in communication. However, um, it would it'd be really turning a, a blind eye to the success of First Light by getting away from conservation public lands access the you know really having a stance on on and and defining the access battle and pu- what public lands mean to hunters is really what did our marketing for us it wasn't the point but we you know, definitely got a lot of emails. Like in the marketing world, you don't get direct affirmation that often. So when you do, you pay attention. And we got a ton of emails saying, here's all the people that manufacture a merino wool t-shirt. They all cost about the same. This is why I'm buying yours. And that's definitely something that we still go back to today. We definitely recognize uh, Ford Van Fossen at First Light, who who had that director of conservation title. That that's changed to a director of brand, which simply means, in my opinion, that conservation so ingrained in the company that. We don't necessarily need to call it out with a title. Uh, Does a phenomenal job. He's taking... uh, He's taking the conservation uh, messaging and level uh, up 
several notches by, you know, it's, it's time, treasure, and talent in the conservation world. I think Randy Newberg always coined that. But Ford's done a phenomenal job in putting together like some actual sweat equity into um, some big projects, specifically in Idaho, you know, going through and, and planning tons of winter forage um, physically yeah, uh, out there on the mountainside with the U.S. Forest Service and Mule Deer Foundation. And um, that's super, super important because, you know, like the, you just don't have that appreciation for the work that gets done if you can't do it occasionally. And we know that, that the cash is important. The messaging is important, but you also need to occasionally know what it's like to go out there and, and do some planting or some uh, clearing of noxious weeds, some habitat improvement, you know? So, um, I'm incredibly proud of that dude and he's uh, very tireless at it. So the, one of the big things that we'll be talking about here shortly is, uh, our camo for conservation program, which is something that I had, um, kind of presented on just prior to moving over to the meat eater side of things. And we, the first, so the idea, right, is we know that camouflage is an incredible marketing tool, right? It's like the camo pattern is the brand. So wherever you see that camo pattern, it better represent the brand, right? Which is why we had made a decision at first light when we started uh, making our own camo that we really wanted to limit what that camouflage pattern could be on. Mm-hmm. And I kind of pitched this idea where not only did we want to make sure that that camo, wherever it was, whatever it was on, represented us, but we also wanted that camo to represent a something specific to conservation. So camo for camo for conservation was was born. So when we came out with the tree stand pattern, which is called Spectre, a percentage of every single sale, regardless of where that pattern is, what it's on, goes to um, the National Deer Alliance. And our waterfowl pattern that we just launched, no matter what you find that pattern on, a percentage of that goes to Delta Waterfowl. And we're we're still working on ways to make that program more impactful, but it is it's working. We're we're putting dollars to conservation with every sale associated with with those patterns, and then you know of course we're we're doing a lot more on on top of that. So 
That's awesome. It's so encouraging to see socially responsible companies that care about conservation and they're willing to invest in it. There's a lot of lip service by a lot of companies out there, uh, but when you see this commitment to conservation and it's there's a fiscal commitment to it, um, that's the stuff that, that gets me pretty excited about a brand and, and makes me want to support it. And, uh, and, and then it's interesting that you guys get that tactile feedback where people are telling you, we buy your product because your conservation footprint, it's, uh, it's pretty inspiring. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, very, very cool. One of the great things about, uh, about the brand for sure. Um, uh, so, uh, while we're talking about this, how, how, um, how much impact would you say, like your relationship with, of course you were with First Light, then you came across the Meat Eater, um, and then there was the acquisition post that. How active were you in that process? Is that something that you were involved in, Ryan, or, or were you, is that sort of completely independent of what you were doing in the Meat Eater realm of things um, for the acquisition itself? You know, I, I've always been a good guy to talk to, but I was so I was there in that capacity, but I was not uh, uh, someone who was, uh, you know, dealing in in mergers and acquisitions. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, so now with the the way it is, you know, the current situation, you talked about the work that's being done there. Are you involved on the first light, uh, first light side of things, or is there any involvement there? Or is it strictly mediator, and you don't really do anything other than the relationships that you have from before with first light? Nope, still working with first light. Um, Ford, as I mentioned, he and I are on on the phone or or text uh, very frequently, and um, I mean, same with Phelps game calls and and FHF and you know, what I really work on help with is um, developing some brand specific conservation initiatives. So we're going to see some, some great stuff from Phelps game calls and we're going to see some great stuff from FHF to be very clear. Both companies have done a lot uh, on their own. But, you know, we've got some tricks up our sleeves, some things that we've learned over the years to make those uh, pushes more impactful. And we have, you know, a pretty high bar where we want to see each brand, including like the Meat Eater Home Office brand, uh, have some volunteer initiatives some local initiatives and some national initiatives. So that's something that we require out of all brands. And that's something that, uh, you know, that's, that's part of my in the office hat that I wear is coordinating with the brands and, you know, finding, finding the ways that, that we can be impactful with a conservation initiative or group that speaks very specifically to each each brand's kind of core uh, audience. So um, it's it's great. Like uh, we have more people um, than certainly like the Phelps or 
FHF team has ever had. So we got to provide that extra bandwidth and not say, uh, I'm going to also task you with doing all this on top of all your day-to-day operations that you need to get done. And uh, so do some some creative process with them, see what, what works with their brand, what they're really passionate about, what they would like to see changed or help out with. And uh, then I can kind of take that and run and, and help build it out on my side of things. Right on. Um, so on that note, um, we've kind of touched on it already here, but what is a typical day in the office for, for Cal? Like what, what is your, are you sitting behind a desk eight hours or, you know, obviously you've got the outreach communications, you've got the hunts, you've got um, the production side of things, but what would a typical kind of a week in the office look like for you in general? I am still trying to find a typical week. <laughs> okay. It, I kind of figured that was coming. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. There's a, a lack of schedule um, and there's, it's very dynamic. So last week, we worked in conjunction with Kent State, Ohio State, University of Texas, and uh, North Bridger Bison here. And we um, killed and field dressed, butchered a two and a half year old bison bull uh, using stone tools. Um, mm-hmm. That would have been like you know, accurate for what the, uh, early, early people were using about 12,000 years ago. And, um, you know, that's not something that pops up on everybody's calendar right at work. (laughs) No, no, that's for sure. (laughs) So that'll be a a really cool paper that will be, uh, coming out here in the next year. We were just, you know, the, the physical, uh, part of that and got to work with a really incredible team of um, archaeologists and anthropologists and uh, paleoarchaeologists and and do do the work with primitive tools and it was amazing one of the most you know cool opportunities I've ever had if I'm being honest and then I put all that stuff away, got on a plane real early and went and joined the sportsman for the Boundary Waters canoe area on a trip to the Boundary Waters in Northern Minnesota. And we, you know, did a, a, a great, very abbreviated Boundary Waters trip, um, canoeing and portaging and fishing and some grouse hunting and uh, lots of cooking over the fire to get, you know, some firsthand knowledge about how special that area is. There's a proposed mine up there, which would be an open pit copper sulfide mine. And right now they're in another environment, environmental review process. Uh, but it doesn't mean the mine wouldn't happen. Um, you know, I'm talking to you on the computer here and I use a cell phone and there's, uh, stuff that we dug out of the earth 
incorporated in all of that. So I'm not anti-mine, but that'd be a, a really tough place to have a mine that wouldn't have some real impacts on um, the surface water and groundwater that is incredibly important, um, certainly to the people there, but also just to our freshwater reserves. And it's an absolute hell of a place to recreate too. So big, saw some giant moose um, for the lower 48 anyway, and and uh, tons of birds and caught some nice fish. And then I uh, just got back here and have been working on my podcast, The Week in Review, while on the plane and interviewing people and then took out um, a uh, auction winner for a, a backcountry hunters and anglers auction um, around the uh, the Bozeman area to see some cool conservation landscapes and and talk about our private land public access program and um, chase a few birds there as well. And um, now I'm on the Talk Is Sheep podcast. <laughs> Yeah, right on. Well, that, that that is not a normal week for most people, for sure. So, uh, very cool. Well, so, you know, let's just uh, transition a little bit, if you don't mind here, Kellen. Just touch a little bit about some, you know, high-level stuff and stuff that you guys deal with as a brand all the time. And the Meat Eater brand does a great job about having these tough, complex conversations. But, you know, and, this, you know, we could spend a hundred podcasts talking about this stuff. But when you look at our our space today, the hunting space, the outdoor space, wildlife conservation. What what are our biggest threats? So you know, and and you know, I've always had so much respect for you and for Steve and the brand for Meat Eater for having these open dialogues and 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 you know, encouraging people to get into our space and appreciate it and respect it. Um, but uh, and I'm sure it's in one of the thousands of podcasts you've done. But if you could talk to that specifically, you know, what do you see in your eyes that is a real threat to conservation or wildlife um, and, and then the hunting to the sport of hunting or, or whatever we want to coin that as. So, Oh, well, what really comes to mind, right? Like the, I think the biz, grizzly bear situation in British Columbia is a great example. Um, I have been around grizzlies my entire life living here in Montana Um but never came to be such an incredible like grizzly bear advocate and appreciator um, as I did by guiding grizzlies and, and hunting them in British Columbia. Um, I love those bears. I want to see them thrive and survive. And I think by removing hunters from the process, like, the province of BC has done will ultimately damage those bears. Um, the hunters are some of the best advocates out there and, and truly some of the people with the most intimate knowledge of the, the species or resource, if you'd like to call it that, um, you know, to be clear, something I think about like during that grizzly charge that we talk about, um, you know, it would have been appropriate in hindsight to shoot shoot that bear because of the human life that was, you know, very much 
in the balance at that point. You know, it's not it's not worth um, getting killed over. And those animals are 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 doing great from a population level. You know, and and um, it's we like to have things like so crystal clear, yes, no, black, white, however you want to frame it. And the natural world doesn't, doesn't exist in that fashion. Um, so it's all difficult to talk about and how do you love a bear, but want to kill it at the same time? You know, it's, it's (laughs) interesting, but, uh, I think one of the largest threats to hunting and, and, certainly modern conservation is, is this idea of, um, removing people from these wild landscapes and distancing ourselves from the wilderness, distancing ourselves from, uh, these natural foods and becoming reliant on, uh, synthetic food chain. And that's something that threatens, I think our open spaces and, you know, in a way that most people just can't fathom. So, um, if, if we become reliant on food that doesn't come from the ground and the outside, then we have, you know, no reason to save it, no reason to save that ground. Um, and I, I think that's that's a, a real real threat to you know folks like us that grew up wanting nothing more than to be outside. Yeah, well said. Yeah, um, and I guess you know that's one thing. Mediator has done such a great job of you know sharing this message, and you know you guys as a as a brand just continue to to resonate um, your messaging to, and then again, it's, we don't need to preach to the choir. We all as hunters get that narrative, but it's getting outside our own community and being able to have that dialogue. And that's one thing that you guys absolutely thrive at and has been a huge success and, and um, you know, just normalizing that talk around hunting, which, you know, no one's ever been able to do it to the level that Mediator has. It's, it's a, big audience it's it's a great audience it's a ongoing conversation um and we're we're all learning so i really just want everybody to be engaged in that con in that conversation um and certainly know how to engage others in that conversation one of the things that i think would would be another threat right, is, is hunters are typically very private people. And that extends out to our ability to advocate for ourselves and our pursuits. And, you know, it, we, I get it every, every single week is not an, an exaggeration that I get emails from people saying, hey, I'm 40 some years old, I'm 50 some years old. And I just contacted my representative for the first time ever. And that's what we need more of. We need people who are able to reach out to their elected officials and articulate 
why they need to be represented in the way that they need to be represented. So um, we, we know that there's a lot of other folks who don't see the way that we do that are better at that game than a lot of hunters. And um, we need we need to step up in that regard big time. Well said. I love the call to action. So awesome. I love it. Um, okay, let's uh, to wrap things up. Let's just do some uh, low hanging fruit here. So, what are your five must have pieces of gear? in your pack or, or whatever, when you're out on the landscape, what are your five things that you absolutely need um, that you love and just cannot do without? A Bic lighter <laughs> is okay. way up there. Pine pitch, you know, good, good saturated pitch wood, a Bic lighter, a pocket knife. I prefer a non-serrated blade, smooth edge. Um, wool socks and I mean really like wool base layers will get you through the, uh, a lot of tough times if if and a positive mental attitude really <laughs> like I was just explaining to somebody <laughs> that there's a very subtle difference but there's a big difference between people who think that their mobility is hindered because they have to walk and people who think they can get anywhere because they have to walk. You know, it's, there's, there's folks who think uh, this is tough until I can catch a ride. And there's folks who think I have unlimited freedom because I can walk and you, you can, you can cover some miles if you believe in your feet. Yeah, that's awesome, and I just love that your your response. You know, I I was half expecting, oh, you need, uh, you know, this expensive piece of gear and that expensive piece of gear, and oh, you can't go anywhere without an inReach, and I, it's the five most basic things, you know, and and you know, not even brand dropping either. So pretty cool. I love that response. That makes me really happy to hear your response on that. Cool. Um, okay, another easy one for you, uh, kind of a fun one. So, you know, you've done a lot of hunting. You've seen a lot of territory. You've been a lot of places. What's the bucket list hunt? What's the dream hunt? If you could, if, if you had one hunt left in you, what hunt are you going to do? Anywhere, any place, any cost, it's yours. What's that hunt? <laughs> I want to let you down here. I had, I had 10 days in the woods alone. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, if, I mean, that's. That's just like true happiness for me. Um, I, I like I like being able to traverse some terrain, and yeah, I, you know, God willing, one of these days I'll draw a sheep tag, um, and maybe that'll be it. Um, but I, I love, you know, high alpine mule deer is incredible. Um, just the like. All of those animals up in that zone where you get to traverse some big valleys, um, run some big ridges, see a long way, and kind of have that. I like, you know, I like a challenge, but if there's one thing I recognize in myself, like at the end of the day, the thing that I value the most 
is that time, like just that time in the woods. Like you need a few days to decompress and you need a big enough chunk of time before you have to leave to forget that you have to leave. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So on that note, Cal, I find it interesting, like with you, you're, you're always, you know, you're a public figure, you're highly recognized. People want to be, everyone wants a piece of Cal. Um, and then, you know, a lot of what you do is on a camera. It's on a hunt with a cameraman and a crew and a cinematographer. And, um, you know, does that change the way you do things? The, the cool thing is you have to do all this stuff for a living, but there is a compromise too. You're a celebrity. You got all this stuff to deal with. Talk about, you know, how that, how you manage that. And do you, you know, that, you know, you're, you never get the 10 days in the wilderness by yourself ever. That doesn't exist anymore. So how is that for you? Um, you know, the, the reason that I, I do this gig is because there's there's a huge opportunity with the platform to to do some good and i think you know right now we have a lot of opportunity in a short time frame to make sure that we're leaving this place better than we found it i have gotten so much fulfillment and enjoyment from my time in the outdoors that this is my opportunity to make sure that that's around for somebody else to stumble into, you know? So, and, and I know from all the feedback that we get that there's a lot of people who, you know, are looking to have that opportunity somehow, some way, you know, and, and, and it's not all there's, I, I know from uh, taking people on hikes that not everybody gets the same enjoyment I get out of the places that I like to walk. So um, there's varying degrees of of that uh, sense of wilderness, right? It's not all a capital W, but um, and, and and I will say that the the folks that accompany me for work are phenomenal, and they appreciate the outdoors. Uh, like, I mean, if you want to really be able to talk to somebody about how cool a spot is, uh, phot- a photographer is a great person to do that with, right? Like mm-hmm. they have an eye for the landscapes and the light and it's, it's, uh, a good way to be on the same level with somebody. Um, and you know, walking with three or four folks everywhere you go definitely alters the way you move. Cause you have to hide sound and smell and movement in, uh, in a, a majorly different way than, um, just slinking through a spot on your own. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's a incredible opportunity, you know? So, and, and I've get to slide into people's lives and check out their cool spots in a way that I never, never would. Right. It's like, I've seen parts of every state and, um, not every province yet that, uh, are not on guidebooks or hiking trails that you just, you would never ever go to by trying to figure it out on your own. So that's, 
and the little bits of culture, right? Like mm-hmm. every, every camp's a little different, you know, the way they cook, the way they do things, how they came to do things in that fashion. It's, it's, uh, pretty incredible to go kind of get that snapshot of people's lives. Uh, very cool. Um, Did I dodge the question or answer it? Yeah, it was a, it was a darn good response. I have to give you that. So, um, so on that note, uh, so much for the bucket list stuff. Uh, but um, let's talk a little bit about, and maybe you can't talk about it because you guys, I know you got a production schedule and and you've got stuff there. But uh, are you able to share any of your fall hunt plans with us, or um, is that all kind of under wraps because it's you guys are televising that stuff? How does that work? Can you talk about it? Um, well, kind of yes and no. I mean, I'll be, um, going out to, to cover some, some cool public access stories here shortly, um, in South Dakota. And then we'll be, um, we'll actually be in South Dakota for about a month, which, uh, they call it the one of the many places they call a sportsman's paradise and, and they're probably right. Um, and get to take the dog with me on that one. And then I've got a couple of tags, um, that I'm looking to get out after. And, um, they're, uh, both, both here in Montana in the home state, but, I'm uh, I, I'm not going to film either one of those. Okay, cool. So you get to actually do some hunting for yourself for your, your do your 10 days in the wilderness. So, yeah, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm bringing some first timers along um, to make sure that uh, that's something I like to do every year and um, get try to get folks started on the right foot and hopefully not um, have them say, boy, that hunting stuff's not for me. Right. But, yeah. Um, really looking forward to that. And, and we have um, definitely some some cool shoots coming up that um i probably shouldn't spoil for everybody yeah no but fair enough you'll yeah. be you'll be very happy when you come out yeah cool yeah no i don't need any secrets so awesome well hey cal i just can't thank you enough and and the brand uh, meat eater and and everything that you guys whoever you work with um it's uh you know it's it's one of the bright lights of our outreach in the in the uh, hunting community and uh Steve and, and all the crew at, at Meat Eater and yourself in particular are just doing a fantastic job. And, you know, the stuff you guys put out, I love to consume and, and so many people do. So anyway, I just want to thank you. Thank you guys for all you do at Meat Eater for us as as hunters and people that care about things associated with hunting, conservation, public land, all that sort of stuff. And and in particular, you, uh, you know, you're one of the guys I've, I've followed for a long time and just appreciate all you stand for and all you, you continue to put out there. So thank you for taking, making time for us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank, thank you so much. And, um, yeah, for everybody listening, I'll tell you, board members are not paid positions. That's a lot of volunteer hours. So, um, when you, when you get involved with the conservation organization, uh, Think of uh, what's happening here on on the Talk Is Sheep podcast. That's a lot a lot of time. Uh, appreciate it. Well, awesome. Well, um, how, how's Snort doing? By the way, after that snake bite, is uh, what's going on there? 
she's she's doing great she's okay. doing great so um and like i said I, i'm gonna keep her with me for a solid month here and we'll get a lot of exercise and and um we'll we'll definitely find some birds awesome well that's great to hear i'm glad to hear that she's doing well and you have a great fall and uh look forward to to seeing some of these hunts and uh maybe we'll try and connect in the the new year and uh, get an update on the on the fall and the winter for you guys Hey, that sounds great. Have a great season, and and thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it, Kel. Thank you.